choosing to put the interests of others before my own, choosing not to please myself so that I might please others. This is one of the most radical counter-cultural new life disciplines of the Christian life. When Jesus Christ becomes your Lord and Savior, He recalibrates your life to His example of self-sacrificial love for sinners. And such love includes this discipline with the people that are sitting around you today. Unless you visit with us and won't be back, those that sit around you right now as we think about them to willingly choose to do what I know will benefit others by choosing not to do what would please me. How can we consistently honor this new life principle? The only way is to consciously respond to the grand redemptive plan of God to save a people for His name who worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's to look past the individuals that surround us, to look past my own little life, and to look at His grand purpose, what He is doing from heaven to save a people. When this larger vision of redeeming grace is lost in the cloud of our self-serving interests, we lose all capacity to put others ahead of ourselves, to serve self, to promote self, to please me, is as natural as breathing. But the risen Christ, whose saving glories we have sung this morning, changes all of that. We now live for Jesus by living for one another. And think of that, those of you who gather with family here today, and think of that, all of us, as we gather with the family of Christ. We live for Jesus by living for one another. I think this conviction really undergirds the Apostle Paul's counsel to the church at Rome in chapters 14 and 15. This was, we know, a faithful church. These were good people. Wise, biblically grounded people. We find that in chapter 15 and verse 14. But Paul wanted to address a point of tension in the assembly. It troubled the unity and the spiritual growth of the church. There was a division between what Paul called those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. Two groups in the church who differed on matters of conscience. They believed together that Jesus was Lord and Savior, that His death atoned for their sin, that it brought them into the body of Christ. They rejoiced in the truths of Scripture, but they did not agree on what the Christian life should look like. Some of the activities that were permissible to them, some that weren't, some that God did not approve, others thinking that He did. And this troubled the unity of the assembly. 
We've considered these two groups for a couple of weeks, and we look again here today, but just to review here with this graphic, the strong in the faith, their practice was to consume non-kosher meat and drink and to disregard Jewish holy days. They didn't look down on those holy days, but they didn't believe that they needed to observe the Day of Atonement. As Gentiles, they were not called to that. Christ fulfilled the law. They were no longer under that obligation. The weak in the faith believe that they must abstain from non-kosher meat and drink and that they needed to observe the Jewish holy days. God revealed to His people that these days were be, to be observed. And they believed that if they did not observe them, they would be dishonoring the Lord. Now the temptation for the strong was to despise and belittle and dismiss and ridicule the weak and in the relationship with one another to flaunt their freedom. For the weak, on the other hand, the temptation was to judge, to accuse, to condemn the strong, to say you're not honoring God. And there was also a temptation for the weak to violate their own conscience rather than judging those that didn't follow the ideas that they thought they should, they, they could be influenced in such a way that they would follow them by violating their own conscience. This was the danger, the temptation. The responsibility that Paul has laid upon the weak is to receive, or on the strong rather, is to receive the weak. To not cause them to stumble, to build them up, to protect their conscience. That is, the strong are protecting the conscience of the weak. You're to go to work to that end. They were to indeed even suspend what they knew they had freedom to do. To pursue peace and harmony and unity. To love the weak. The responsibility that the weak had to the strong was to receive them, to welcome them, to pursue peace and harmony and unity and to love them. For the strong, the heart calibration needed to be this. Christ died for your weak brothers and sisters. He is their master. They answer to Him, not ultimately to you. And He is sustaining their salvation and He will render final judgment. They will stand before the throne of the Lord. You're not their ultimate judge. And of course, that very same line of thought applied to the weak as they considered the strong. Jesus can handle your brother and sister. They may not always be doing what you think they should do. They may be following some practices that offend your conscience, but Jesus can handle them. Let Him be the Master. Let Him be the judge that He is. Trust Him. Now as Paul closes out the section found in Romans 14.1 to 15.13, he stresses two ideas. First, a point of narrow application that's going to get right back into this and kind of conclude this weak in the faith, strong in the faith division. And then, secondly, he moves to a point of more global perspective. And I've brought that out here in this introduction of seeing the larger picture that's going on with Christ's saving grace, which is really our answer and our hope. But let's consider first of all, as we come to Romans chapter 15, 
in the first verse, let's consider, consider the narrow application, and that is this call. When matters of conscience divide believers, imitate Christ by setting aside self-serving interests in order to please others. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Who are the strong? It's clear now to us certainly. They are these believers who understand that Jesus' death and resurrection frees them from the ritual obligations of the Mosaic Law. They know that Christ's coming fulfilled the law. So their consciences do not restrict them from enjoying non-kosher meat and wine, which could not have been eaten and consumed under the Mosaic Law by God's people Israel. They also understand they don't need to observe holy days prescribed for God's people under the Old Covenant. They get that. They understand that. And Paul includes himself among these believers, strong in the faith. But what's his exhortation to those who are strong in the faith? It's to bear with the failings of the weak. That's not a compliment to the weak. Paul wants them to grow in their faith. He wants them to understand how to put together old and new covenant. To recognize what Christ has done and what that death means to them as individuals. He wants them to grow in that. But he says to the strong, don't dismiss them, don't ridicule them. But rather, this is what I want you to do. Bear with their failings. Not please yourself. What does Paul mean by bear with? Let's take two parents, three preschool children. Put them in a long road trip to grandma's house. Imagine the scene. Now the parents on this trip are going to bear with a lot, right? There's going to be interruptions. There's going to be all manner of subhuman noises that are coming to them all the time. There's going to be all kinds of mess. And so they're going to bear with it in what sense? In the sense that they're going to tolerate it. They're going to put up with it until we finally get to Grandma's house. Once they get to Grandma's house, Bearing with takes a little different perspective here, and that's that they got to get all the stuff out of the car into the house. And so there's blankets and sippy cups and books and toys and all this kind of stuff, and each child is given something to carry into Grandma's house, but not a lot. You take one thing, maybe two, we'll trust you with that. Mom and Dad are loaded down with all the rest of the stuff. They are bearing the stuff into the house with the kids. It's in this second sense that Paul is speaking here. He's not saying put up with the weak, tolerate them. They're such an irritant, but just just put up with it. No, what he's saying is pick up the weight with them. They're not going to carry as much as you do. That's fine, but you can meet them and carry the weight. Using the word in the second sense, what does it mean practically? Practically, 
This required the strong to do at least two things. The first was to identify your brothers and sisters who are weak in the faith. So what the apostles encouraging them to do is, is you, you know who they are. They're observing Pentecost. They're observing Passover. When you go with them to the market, they buy only vegetables. You know who they are. Identify these individuals. And I want you to get it. To get what's happening here. You're right. They do not understand that Christ liberated them from old covenant requirements as they follow Christ. Yes, we are the strong in the faith. But I want you to look at those church members that you have and know that they have a troubled conscience when you eat non-kosher meat. Recognize who they are. Then secondly, choose not to please yourself. Choose to please them. Lift the weight of their troubled consciences by doing good to them. Good is the opposite of ridicule, of condescending dismissal. You're going to relate to them in a way that Verse 2 builds them up. So I think the good that he's speaking though, you see it there in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. What is his good? Say it more pointedly, to build him up in the faith. He has a weak faith. You can ridicule or you can pick up the weight and help. You can do what is good and encouraging. Only a Christian rescued by Christ would have the patience to do that. In our little story, only parents who love their children pick up all that junk and carry it into the house. They love them. They care for them. They're going to help them get on in life. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, this then is our calling, to bear weight with one another. When we have consciences that differ, when we are divided about how to live the Christian life, what we're to do is go toward one another, receive one another, and love one another. Now let's ask this question. What right does Paul have to exhort us to set aside our own interests? Why is that right? Why do we hear the apostles say that? Choose not to please yourself. What makes that right? Remember, perhaps a couple of weeks back, we talked about the two guys going to market for lunch from this church, from this church in Rome. And the strong wants to buy a juicy hamburger. The weak, his conscience guiding him, purchases only the veggie tray. What is the strong to do? To set aside what he wants, really want that hamburger. I'm contextualizing, I realize. It's probably a piece of meat hanging off a hook with flies all over it. But at any rate, we'll, we'll go with hamburger. He purchased the veggie tray. And he sits down on some grass and he eats with his friend. And he doesn't trouble his conscience. He picks up the weight of his conscience. He knows he can eat a hamburger, and his friend could too, but he's not going to pressure him to do that. He's going to be gracious to build him up. But what makes that right? Verse 3 is what makes it right, and it's the ground of everything. For Christ did not please Himself. 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. He quotes here Psalm 69 and verse 9, which was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. Jesus was taunted. He was scorned. He was rejected because He chose to serve the glory of God. He set aside what would please Him, which would be to escape, to preserve His life. But He set that aside. And when we trust Christ, our lives become connected to His example. We have this high calling then to relate to one another in the same way. Why are we to so love one another? Because this is how Christ loved us. And in fact, there's probably here a connection. That guy that's eating the veggie tray on the spot of grass at the market at noon, these two members of this church we've talked about, the one who knows he can eat meat probably received a fair amount of ridicule from his neighbors, from those around him. What's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? What's his answer to be? Not, well, my stupid friend here doesn't get it. No, he takes the scorn. He takes the ridicule out of love for his Christian brother. What Jesus did for you was to take the scorn and the mocking and the hatred and the rejection of this world in order to meet you in your weakness. How little is it to ask of us now that we bear up weight for those who are weak in the faith. Having drawn a quotation from the Old Testament, Paul offers a brief aside here in verse 4 concerning Scripture. This could be a sermon all in itself. It's a very interesting aside. He says, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I'd like to spend a whole sermon on this, but... As Christians were no longer under the Old Covenant, yet the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is written for our spiritual edification. Christian, read the Old Testament Scriptures. Do not ignore them. A case could be made that we should perhaps spend more of our time in the New Testament text as it reveals this side of the cross of Christ. But Christian, read your Old Testament. A famous evangelical pastor recently exhorted churches to set it aside. Apparently his conviction is that the Old Testament is filled with too much stuff that offends our culture. And so if you don't want your church to die, just set the Old Testament aside. You can read it on your own, do what you want there, but don't bring it into the church. I wonder if this pastor imagines that God frets over what the world thinks about his inspired word. I really don't think so. Read your Old Testament. The whole Bible unfolds the drama of redemption that is fulfilled in Christ. You will not know Jesus as you should know Him without understanding the prophets who identified who He would be. 
if you don't understand the sacrificial system that Jesus' death fulfilled, God's loving election of a people through whom Messiah would be born to crush Satan's head, read the Old Testament Scriptures. They are a source for us as believers of endurance and encouragement that we might have hope in Christ. All of the Bible needs to be read. And bouncing off of those two ideas of endurance and encouragement, which are vital to our growth in Christ, he says now, coming back to the theme, uh, verse 5, after the interruption of verse 4, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, using those two words, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins here to move toward the larger picture with this prayer for the Roman church. We are to please one another, to edify one another, to love one another so that we will walk in harmony, not be divided. And what is the point of this unity? Why is it vital to live in harmony that honors the will and follows the example of Jesus Christ? Verse 6 is the answer, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When members are judging one another and ridiculing one another because they cannot agree on fine details of what the Christian life should look like, they will struggle to glorify God with one voice. The ultimate purpose of Christian unity is not that we experience social peace and happiness as a church community, so that we all just get along. That may result, and we praise God for it when it does, but the ultimate purpose is that we serve together and glorify the name of God together with united voice, a voice that He has purchased with His death. So Friday night, teens and empty nesters gathered together and related. We built boats together. You can ask somebody if you don't know what I'm talking about. But it was great fun. And great joy to worship the Lord together as well. As Eric prayed this morning, there's a men's breakfast on Saturday and there's a shower and um, there is uh, decorating that we're doing on Saturday and there's a gathering for worship both today and, God willing, next Lord's Day. As we do these things, every effort to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to pursue unity, all of this serves to enhance our capacity to glorify God. The unity that we pursue, the love that we have for each other, the deference, the bearing up of the weight of one another's convictions, as we do this, we unite to serve God more effectively and to worship God with purer voices. This is his emphasis. And this emphasis on worship, the worship of God's people, leads Paul now to focus on that bigger picture. So in the narrow application, we are to imitate Christ by setting aside self-serving interests in order to please others. There's a break here, I think at verse 7, perhaps your text breaks it at verse 6, 
uh, I'm sorry, at verse 8, but uh, I think we, I'd like to break it here at verse 7. I think what he says now, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, does point back and conclude, but I think it more introduces what is to follow, as we see on this second point, in the global perspective. When matters of conscience divide us as believers, let's look at the big picture, we need to align our relationship with Christ's redemptive mission. So imitating Christ by setting aside my own personal interest in the interests of others, on the narrow application, in the big perspective to align our relationships with Christ's redemptive mission, with what Jesus is seeking to do in and through us. So taking verse 7 with what follows, we read, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We are to receive or welcome one another as we image the way that Christ loved us. Jesus loved us how? He loved us when? He laid down His life and He loved us while we were His enemies. 5.10 He laid down His life to unite us to His body and transform us from blasphemers into worshipers. The ultimate goal of this is for the glory of God. Now that phrase, for the glory of God, can be a throwaway phrase. This is a phrase we find often in the text of Scripture and we recognize it and know that it's right, but we don't really think a lot about it. But let's zero in here carefully and reflect your well-being now and your eternal destiny hinges on this truth that everything is about the splendor and the honor of God everything this principle obliterates self-centeredness When we recognize that everything that I do, everything that I have, every relationship that I enter is all about the glory of God, that that's why I live, why He's given us life, and what is the purpose of it, it destroys the self-centered warring that goes on among us. Receive each other So that God's name is magnified. When we don't receive each other, when we don't welcome each other, it's because we're seeking to magnify my name, our names. So the glory of God is at issue. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness let me stop there the circumcised or literally the circumcision is a reference to the jews who have priority in god's salvation plan remember 116 to the jew first and also to the gentile in 11 17 through 18 the jews are the sustaining root the promises to abraham and to david are the sustaining root into which gentiles are grafted which again just makes me shudder to hear this counsel that we should set the Old Testament aside in the churches. 
we are sustained by the root of God's promises through the patriarchs and through David to his greater son. We are grafted into that work of salvation in order that God's truthfulness would be revealed. You see it there in verse 8. Christ became a servant to Israel to show God's truthfulness. And I think here we would read the word truthfulness not in just the sense that God doesn't lie, but in the sense of His faithfulness. He is true to His name. Proving Himself true to His name, He displays that truth, first of all, verse 8, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He is faithful to Abraham, let's just say with him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is faithful to them by honoring His promises. Secondly, verse 9, and in order that, you see the in order to, verse 8, and the in order that, verse 9, first, to the Jews, He fulfills the promises. Then secondly, to the Gentiles, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So the evidence of God's faithfulness to Israel, He keeps His promises to the patriarch. The evidence of God's faithfulness to the Gentiles is that He permits them to sing His praises as He meets them with mercy. And now, assembling four Old Testament texts which prophesy Christ's mission, Paul demonstrates that God always intended to bless Jews and Gentiles with His saving grace. These Old Testament quotations emphasize the Gentiles praising God. So Paul is really soaring here with the grand cosmic vision of God's redemptive purposes as he shows the glorious picture into which the squabbles that the Roman believers were having was to be set. It was to influence the way that they related to one another. Here it is as he quotes now from the Old Testament, as it is written, verse 9, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Interesting context, Psalm 18. King David exalts God's name among the Gentiles that he's vanquished, that he's defeated. But if we read this properly, it, is, it certainly is possible, and I think likely, that David's greater son, Jesus Christ, typologically fulfills this psalm by conquering Gentiles, not with an army, but by the cross. By delivering us from our sin, He conquers Gentiles who now praise His name. Christ conquered people sing His praises as Christ's happy subjects. We sing His name as Gentiles, here in this place today. Verse 10, he continues, again it says, the Scriptures again say, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Quoting Deuteronomy 32.43, Paul reminds his Jewish readers that the Gentiles were always welcome to praise God alongside His people. See that with His people, Gentiles, Jews, singing together, Not a lot of people, not a lot of God's people saw this. But as we begin to comb through the Old Testament text, we see these references popping up to the Gentiles praising God with His people Israel. And again, verse 11, 
quoting here Psalm 117 and verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. I think all the peoples are the Gentiles. The Gentiles praising God here. Paul supporting his thesis that God always intended the Gentiles to praise Him for His saving grace. And now in Christ, they're doing just that at Rome. You see where he's going here? Listen, church, look up. Jews and Gentiles got together this past Lord's Day and they were singing the praises of Christ. This is Jesus' conquest. Think of it. Scripture's always pointing to this day and now you as a church are experiencing this. Verse 12, in Isaiah, going to 11 and verse 10, in Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse, a messianic term, the shoot coming out of the root of the tree that is God's saving way. And Jesse, of course, the uh, father of David, a messianic reference to Jesus Christ who will rule, Isaiah prophesies. And his rule will include the Gentiles. Paul brings then the section to close with this prayer for the Roman believers. Verse 13, May then the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul invokes here the God who alone can give our souls hope by His mediating Holy Spirit. This is a hope the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians in Rome who place their faith in Christ shared together by God's grace. It's a hope that fills the soul with joy and peace that displaces our self-centered warrings with love for one another. May God do this work in you and unite your hearts as Christ intends for all eternity. That's how you handle one another's conscience. On the narrow level, you place the interests of one another ahead of your own. You bear up one another's faith. You honor and respect and receive and love one another because, secondly, on that higher plane, Christ is reconciling Jews and Gentiles. The greatest divide that's probably ever been imagined in the history of humanity, Christ has overcome by His death and resurrection. So as we unite and love and receive, we reflect what Christ has always intended, what God's saving purpose has always been. You could just about accuse Paul of really overdoing it here. I mean, he brings out the massive guns against this little squabble in the Roman church. Gentile and Jewish Christians are irritating one another. They're judging one another for the way that they live their Christian lives. And Paul blasts away at the problem with appeal to Christ's grand redemptive work. You need to integrate yourself into this larger work of Christ that's redeeming His people and turning you as a church into people who praise His name. I mean, isn't that a bit much, Paul? He's going to eternity past. God's purpose. 
purposes. He's going to the revealed text of Scripture that comes from thousands of years before. He's speaking of Jew and Gentile, the fullness of time, the coming of Messiah, the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. Jews and Gentile believers now having been reconciled as God's united people, the church. He's bringing all that to bear on this little squabble. Well, this little squabble It takes all that to beat it. We don't begin to understand the depths of our sin. We don't begin to understand the depths of wickedness when we go to war with one another, when Christ wants us to be united with each other. And it takes this to defeat it. It takes a Philippians 2, the one who lays aside the glories of heaven, who doesn't hold on to that reputation at all costs, but Jesus Christ taking on flesh, descends, humbles Himself, and dies to end the war. To to end the war that self constantly fuels it takes radical means to replace our self-centered warring with unified praise to god it is what christ has purchased it will be realized in heaven but here oh what trouble we face because of our sin and our self-centeredness In fact, what trouble you face, I may speak to some, you've not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You've not met Him personally. You've not been born again. And maybe one of the evidences today is that when we were singing, that's too many W's in a row, when we were singing this morning, it didn't do anything. All you were looking at is who was doing what, sounding what instrument, or what voices were singing, or whether the song... Uh, sounded good or not, it's really not your thing, and this singing meant nothing. Maybe you didn't even sing the words. And you're sitting among people who are deeply affected by those same words of praise. That's a problem for you. There's something that's not right there And the reason is that you're at war with God. You might think you're at war with your parents. You might think you're at war with your mate, your boss. But all of the war in your life, all the things that aren't right, are really rooted in the fact that you're at war with God. And so when His praises are sung, it just doesn't affect you. It doesn't move you to joy. It doesn't move you to tears. You're just dead to it. Now there's certainly a place in a believer's life where there can be seasons of that. But if that's all you've ever sensed, which I just go through the routine, I just go through the ritual, it doesn't really connect with me in my heart. It's because you're at war with God. I'm not saying you have to like this church's music as such. But the words that we sing the way that it's expressed, the glories that we lift up to God in His name, if that doesn't move you, if you don't see that as wonderful, 
It's because you're at war with God. But the beauty of the message here is that Christ has come to change that. To reconcile you to the Father by paying the penalty of sin in the place of sinners to give us life in His name. He died while we were enemies. It's right at this point that you really need to make a right step. That right step is not for you to now improve yourself, to try to be a little more awake when we come to times of singing as a church or something like that, for you to somehow fit yourself to gain God's favor. The necessity is for you to say, God, I'm at war with you. I break your law. I find no joy in you. I do not love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I need you to forgive me. I need the forgiveness that Christ has earned. And I embrace it by faith. Putting my trust in Christ, death for me, to pay the cost of my sin. To trust His resurrection power to give me life. This only is the answer to end the war between you and God, which then ends the war between people. And what God does to reconcile us to Himself through Christ, He now is working out in this assembly, in our relationship with one another, that this grand global victory begins to filter down into the way that we relate to others. Indeed, even at times when we disagree in our very conscience as to what is the, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. There we receive one another and love one another. Our consciences differ on all kinds of things. I throw out a list. I'm not seeking to be provocative. I'm just saying it's just the reality. Matters of conscience that divide us. We can be divided over Sabbath observance, public secular education, of Christians that take different views of that, consciences that speak different things, certain styles of music. I don't think there's anybody that thinks music itself is evil, but there's certain issues that arise, or certain styles of dress. Or, let's go even deeper, head coverings for women. That's not in the Old Covenant, that's in the New Covenant. That's instruction that we find. So, how do we relate on these matters? There are differing Opinions, beverage alcohol, recreational marijuana, which apparently now you can do as of yesterday or the day before something in Minnesota. Uh, This is going to become a real issue that we are facing, and you will see Christians differing on these matters. Certain types of dancing. There's dancing in the Bible, so I assume everybody knows there's something that can be done there. But there's all kinds of questions as to what's appropriate for a Christian. Yoga acupuncture, acupressure, burning incense in your home. Never thought of that. Well, some have. Cinema, that big, huge word. How do we deal with social media? Gambling. Racetrack betting. Or just having a meal at a casino. What about that? Tattoos. Oh, boy. 
There's all kinds of different messages that our consciences send us in all of these areas. And let me say, this is complicated stuff, is it not? It's wrong, for instance, to say that the strong have a clear conscience to participate in each of these activities. I think it's a very foolish way of applying this text. Let's go back to 13 and verse 14. We're to make no provision for the flesh. And there's going to be a lot of things on this list that any godly Christian is not going to do, at least in some form or other, by not making provision for the flesh. Not making provision for the flesh, avoiding something that draws us away from Christ, is not being weak in the faith. To make that equation is just foolishness. And many Christians make it. So the person that can do all these things wherever they want... That's the strong Christian. No, it's a foolish way to apply this text. It's also wrong to look at each of these lists, and I've just thought of what came to mind in a fairly short period of time, but it's also foolish to fail to see that there are wide variations within each of these categories, right? I know through my wife's insights, I would never have known this till the day that I die, but apparently there are people who get their eyebrows tattooed. I didn't know that, but maybe, maybe you have. It's a little different than somebody that's got vulgarities all over their upper torso, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a range there in what we would consider. There are tattoos that are entirely off-putting to the vast majority of people on the planet Earth. A lot of variation here compared to somebody who's just done their eyebrows. We must also remember that for the Roman believers, there was a clear-cut differentiation between the weak and the strong that related to how they understood the relationship of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We don't have that situation precisely, and I don't think that it's wise for us to take a list like this and to shoehorn it into the conversation of the weak and the strong in Romans 14 and 15. But while it is difficult to find any direct parallel to our own day, the larger principle is clear to us, and it's beautiful. It is a call to put self-interest aside for the good of one another. It's a call to bear up the faith of one another. And that's going to look different ways on different issues here. There's going to be some who are very weak in the faith, who are caught up in sin by pursuing certain things that they shouldn't be pursuing, and those strong in the faith are going to come alongside of them and build them up and encourage them and seek to draw them out of that mess. It's just not addressed here in Romans 14 and 15. There's going to be some on the other side who know that there are people whose consciences are bothering them about issues where they need to be retrained and to rethink it. To not be bothered by what is not bothersome to Christ. To be at peace. We need, the point is we need to love each other. And here's the deal. The risen Christ has brought salvation to this church. He has purchased our lives with His blood. And He means to unite people who don't think alike. Who don't see life the same way to love each other and receive each other and be unified with one another, that we would be reflecting the larger saving grace of Christ. 
and would be announcing to one another all of the time these minor differences that we have, these matters of serious conscience differentiations. None of this is larger than what Christ has done. And we dare not make the church into something less than what Christ has done. But to love one another, to receive one another, and indeed then, to steward one another's sanctification. We're not going to always agree. We won't see it the same way. But we can speak to one another, not creating cliques, not passing judgment that we shouldn't, not ridiculing, but being patient and gracious and loving and coming together and raising our voices in song to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of this church. And you, my brother and sister, we're not going to agree on how to live the Christian life in all of its nuances, but let's agree on this. Christ is our Lord. He is our Master. We will someday stand before His judgment throne. That is a serious, fearful thought. And that is a joyful thought to celebrate. So we come and we sing together and we love one another and we serve together, worshiping together, united in Christ. We steward one another's sanctification out of love.